listeners, and welcome back to This Week in Black History, Society, and Culture, a podcast of the Black and African Diaspora Forum of Monmouth University. I'm Penny V. Williams, your host. Today on This Week in Black History, Society, and Culture, we have one of my best and most favorite guests, Dr. Anwar Uhuru, now an assistant professor in the Department of African-American Studies at Wayne State University. Welcome to, back to the show, Anwar. Thank you. I'm, I'm like gushing over here with that lovely introduction and, and kind remarks. How are you today? I am doing well, and especially because I have you back on the show to talk about Black culture and particularly the Black church on film and television. And uh, this hilarious film, Honk for Jesus, is our, our, our main focus here. But, but this is an interesting topic because the Black church, many would argue, at least historically, has been the most important institution in Black life. And some would argue it remains to, to, to be in that position. So there haven't been a lot of really good television shows or films I think anyway about the black church and black life. There are a few of them, obviously, like Greenleaf on the own network. Black Jesus, of course, is another kind of satirical take on religion and black life. And for obvious reasons, right? Uh, African-Americans, according to the Pew Research Center study on religion, are perhaps the most religious uh, ethnic group in the country. So first we will discuss uh, Dr. Huru's teaching and research interests, and then we'll focus on our discussion of the Black church and film and television, primarily through a discussion of Honk for Jesus. So Amor, tell us a little bit about your educational teaching research background. I think our viewers have gotten to know you well, but it's always good to revisit this stuff. Well, that's uh, interesting now that I've, this far removed from school now. Uh, so my undergraduate degree was dual focus because I went to a liberal arts school and it's now closed Mary Grove College, which was the all women's college to University of Detroit Mercy. And then it got uh, became co-ed in the 70s. Uh, my degrees were in dance and humanity. So I have a performance arts background and I did that until I was about 26 or so. And then I got my MA uh, while I was uh, in my early 20s, so that way I could have a little buffer as I was auditioning and things of that nature. And then subsequently, time and the body does what it does. And then I went back and got a second master's at Teachers College, Columbia University in uh, philosophy and education. Did not want to stay at that institution per se, because we, you and I both have PhDs, so I don't have to go into that. <laughs> then I subsequently <laughs> got my PhD at St. John's University in um, English and Comparative Lit with a focus on Afro-Diaspora Studies. So that's my quick blurb, what my education is in. And I was a colleague of yours, and we would often talk at Monmouth, and then now I'm at Wayne. And I finally got Get, I feel like I'm in the best department now because I'm in FM studies and I have affiliations with gender, sexuality and women's studies and um, the philosophy department. And there I'm going to be graduate faculty in the philosophy department because my home institution or department does not have 
a degree beyond the bachelor's degree. Um, and so therefore, when it comes to my research, I'm able to fully uh, go as far as Africana thought allows me to go in the ways in which if I were in a discipline specific program or department, I would feel a bit stifled or stymied or always go up against, well, this isn't quite what our field does, or I don't know how to measure your scholarship in the ways in which I know the top tier journals in said discipline, if that makes any sense. Sure. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It does. And, um, it's the question I wanted to also bring up today is interdisciplinarity. Your work is inherently interdisciplinary. And obviously the field of African-American studies or Africana studies more broadly is interdisciplinary. So can you talk to us about that a little bit more and or even your own definition of interdisciplinary studies? That's a great question because I know, uh, depending on who you ask, they have a very specific definition of what it means. And then you even have people saying, well, I'm transdisciplinary. And so I borrow from Lewis Gordon, who talks about disciplinary decadence, where when we get so married to our respective disciplines and even feels that we're supposed to be interdisciplinary, become very discipline specific, sometimes more than uh, sociology, psychology, history, uh, mathematics, et cetera, would even argue because the origins of those disciplines are quite broad in, in its uh, sense. But uh, I would look at interdisciplinary uh, studies where I personally honor the methodology of those fields, i.e. I respect it, but I take the intellectual property or ideas and I think about them in its most um, abstract and broad ways. And then I funnel it down to a very focused thesis or a question I would like to broach to answer. So for me, it's not uncommon to read sociology, history, theoretical physics or mathematics, uh, philosophical texts that aren't too uh, narrowed and covertly honoring white supremacist thought, and um, other fields like neuroscience and, and things of that nature to really grapple with what I'm most interested in is basically social ontology, uh, because I focus on the Black body and Black experience. So to narrow myself down to a discipline per se would just almost like t- cutting my toes off. So I look at interdisciplinarity or transdisciplinarity as inviting everyone at the table, but allowing a couple empty chairs just in case I didn't think of that person right off the top of my head. Yeah, it makes sense that your 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 work is closely aligned with the philosophy too, as you mentioned as we came on today. And it it makes me think about my own field is it's, you know, my training is in history, but intellectual history is inherently interdisciplinary because it comes out of, you know, philosophy and literary theory. It has a very close relationship in terms of as a as a subfield in history. So we kind of, I think I completely understand your point about, and then when you're looking at, you know, the African-American experience, it's just impossible to really rely on one discipline. I think that it really does require an interdisciplinarity. And so it's very well said. I appreciate that uh, response. 
Tell us about some of the courses you're teaching, though, as, you know, an interdisciplinary scholar and uh, maybe some of your favorite courses. I know you're teaching a course on Black Detroit. Yeah. So last semester, um, and it was my first semester, too. So for all of these uh, (laughs) up and coming uh, teachers or props, it's very hard when you are starting at a new institution and then your first semester of teaching because even if you taught the course 15 gazillion times, you're in a new institution with a new audience and you quite don't know the students yet or even how your department operates, et cetera. So I've taken courses uh, on Black Detroit prior because I'm from Detroit and then I came back. And so I've always taught a couple things or art- authors, et cetera, or when people ask me about, so what's up with your city? And of course, they conflate Flint, Michigan with Detroit, which they're mm. nice distance away in the ways in which people conflate the Bronx with Brooklyn and they are geographically distant <laughs> from each other. But I digress. So, uh, I got to teach it in the fall, and luckily I had a colleague in my department who taught it before, so a lot of the heavy lifting was not on me. And of course, I was referring to people I studied with in my undergrad uh, career. So I taught it the way I teach all courses, where we had to look at geography uh, more specifically, not just Michigan, Detroit, and Canada because of the way the river separates Detroit from Canada, but also just migratory patterns of Black folk. And so that was one way I taught it. And I also uh, had this internationalist or transnationalist approach to it too, where I kept reminding students that borders today were not borders yesterday or the day before. So that's how I was able to grapple with it. And of course, I do. I used music, film, um, clips, podcasts, etc. And I was trying to make sure I honored uh, scholars of color, especially historians who've done work on the city. And of course, we looked at urban planning and United Auto Workers. And I had the students look at how many unions exist and, and when they began, because that's very um, important for Detroit studies. And of course, when we talk about Henry Ford and his racist ideology and so on and so forth. And then the other course I taught, and I'm teaching it again this semester, is Anglophone Caribbean Politics and Culture, and my work on Afro-diaspora studies, especially interacting with the Caribbean, is super important since my ancestry is of the Carolina coast with the Gullah Geechee people, and they are arguably Caribbean in nature. So that's been a fun course for me. And then the students really understand um, how intricate the term Caribbean really is, because each island has its own specificity but it may be ans- but multiple islands may be answering to one colonial figure i e england spain etc so right. those are the um courses i've taught thus far in the fall i will be teaching a course that's cross listed with my department african american studies philosophy and gender sexuality and women's studies and we're really going to be basically the title is um who Whose Life Matters. And so we're going to look at uh, groundbreaking court proceedings. So we're going to look at the Somerset case of 1772. We'll look at uh, the Dred Scott case. We'll look at Roe v. Wade. We're going to look at 
the the constant DOMA acts uh, that have happened, Defense and Marriage Acts, and then the students will probably learn how many civil rights acts there were because people only think of the ones that happened in 63, <laughs> but they don't realize that it's been centuries-long uh, fight. And of course, we'll look at um, epistemic injustice uh, in the ways in which we know injustice or we are taught injustice. So those are the things that I have taught and I will be teaching thus far. I really like to take your Black Detroit course. Oh, yeah, um, it's fun. Sounds awesome. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And 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 I'm fortunate to have uh, relatives here. Uh, my grandmother's still with us. And of course, her third child was literally born the weekend of the 67 riots. So, hmm. uh, and of course, she literally lives a block and a half from um, the Hotel Algiers. So wow. she literally lives in a historical spot and she's about, what, eight and a half or so blocks literally from Motown, the where the it was, but now it's a museum. So she is a living archive. And of course, she is a product of the Great Migration as well. So uh, just having her as a resource. And then people are like, wait, you live that long? You, because, you know, uh, time <laughs> and space for a 19-year-old is not the same for someone two, three, or more times their age. So, yeah. In the 1900s? Right, exactly. <laughs> Being referred to someone in the 1900s, I'm like, how dare you? <laughs> I know, right? Make you feel old. Yeah, and unnecessarily so. I'm like, my dear. And and they and oftentimes they think I'm younger than I am anyway. So I'm like, no, I, I am not as young as you think I am, but don't make us as old as you're trying to make us either. True. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we're talking to people who were literally born in the 2000s and more now as time moves on. I mean, I'm sure you've experienced this where we have students now who were not alive during September 11th now. Right. Um, sure. And, and that's huge. And I know, I think the last time we as a culture has felt this way is Vietnam, you know, so yeah, it, it's whoa. <laughs> and things, you know, historical events like Vietnam, you know, they're, well, even uh, the 9-11 wars, I like to call them, you know, they, that's, they didn't even live through 9-11. So what Vietnam was for people who grew up in the backdrop of, you know, Vietnam, Mm-hmm. They they don't. I think they're so disconnected from Vietnam. To them, it's like World War Two. Yes. Like like what was that? You know why was it so important in the culture and and things like that? So sounds like some great courses mm-hmm. I, that that I would definitely myself would want to take. So what about some current uh, research project that connects us to interdisciplinarity again? I know you did a really cool article on Kendrick Lamar. And you really have some great work coming out now. Thanks. Tell us about it. Yeah, I, whenever I talk to, I'm at that phase now where I'm starting to mentor. Um, so when I'm talking to mm-hmm. uh, MA or MFA, I just did a set on an MFA thesis and, or PhD students and that same student is, is on the last lap of getting her acceptance into a PhD program. I tell them, be patient because publications take three times or more longer than you think they will. So for every article someone writes, it could take a minimum of three years or more of persistence. And in the case of the Kendrick Lamar article, it's based on his 2016 Grammy Award performance, but it took 
around about that long <laughs> to finally get it to press. So it took five and a half years of not just me writing and revising, but going through the peer review process. And one press, uh, it just wasn't the right fit. In theory, it should have been, but in reality, it wasn't because you know editors have their own ideas of what they want, and I'll just leave it at that. And then I went mm-hmm. to another journal, same thing. Then I went to a third journal, and that time it was right when the pandemic hit, so no one was thinking about publishing anything. We were just thinking about surviving. And then uh, the last journal with the Journal of Hip Hop Studies, and he's a great editor. Uh, Travis Harris is a great editor, and he's very particular, which I like because you get that attention. Um, felt the best, and obviously it's about a hip hop artist whose work is now at like the Smithsonian. Um, it, it just really showed how much patience and, and, and perseverance one has to go through with the peer review process, and especially when you're a scholar of color and also doing work that has been lambasted by the academy because of the argument of the validity of hip hop. And then I'm fusing hip hop with ontology, which is this notion of black being. So uh, I say all that to say, um, anyone listening, just be persistent and patient and take breaks, but come back to the work. Because if you if you if your gut is telling you it's right, it's right. So that's just my little coach for those out there who are stuck or feel like no one's uh, respecting it. Um, another piece that should be coming out soon, and I haven't heard from the editor yet, which to me is a good thing, <laughs> is a piece on um, Black masculinity in film and television. And that's for Philosophy Compass. And that work will be looking at the ways in which Black male uh, appearance dissolves or disappears when they are hetero, cishet presenting. So if you look at the TV show Martin, he has a trillion characters that he himself plays but if you actually time how long Martin as male is on on screen in any given episode, it's maximum five minutes. He's often going to another character. Um, the most sustainable is when he's playing Shanene. Shanene, yes. yes. And so mm-hmm. I really grapple with that. And then I started to look back to like Flip, Flip Wilson with Geraldine and uh, most male actors who are, who whose character at least is supposed to be straight they themselves are not on often even if you think about things that aren't quite comical that male actor that black male actor has to either do a comedic trope uh be very very palatable to an audience or they have to literally dress and drag so i really want to tease it out what is it about Black masculinity that can't be seen on screen for more than five minutes. And mm-hmm. um, then I start to also take it outside of just a, a straight discourse, but also how do queer Black males appear on film? Oftentimes they are the palatable uh, Black gay best friend whose sexuality is actually kind of removed and they just say they're queer, but there is no signs of their queerness or non-straightness. And then I look at the ways in which, and I mentioned it quickly because you only get so many words per article, um, how RuPaul's Drag Race has been critiqued for really replicating a minstrelsy and how Mm. 
queer Black males, like if you think of like the Real Housewives, whenever they have queer representation or even the Real Housewives themselves, especially Atlanta, they take on this very stereotypical, almost menstrual trope. And even the women are highly made up with the false eyelashes, et cetera. And they are taking on a bit of a drag aesthetic themselves. And so I was really interested in how... uh Black representation, if Black on its own terms, it takes on a uh, a trope, uh, a gesturing, if you will. And so that that's what that piece looks at. So those are the two short pieces that I'm looking at. And of course, I allegedly am writing a book about uh, <laughs> reparations from a uh, social value aspect, not the political economy aspect. I'm really interested in how do we uh, say that Black life matters just on the mundane, uh, whether whether we're at the grocery store or going out for a jog in the case of um, Ahmaud Aubrey, or literally um, in one's bed in the case of Breonna Taylor. So what does it mean to truly value Black life on its just mundane, regardless of respectability politics? Sure. Mm-hmm. And much of what you said allows us to turn our attention to the topic at hand, which is uh, Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul, the 2022 American mockumentary comedy written, directed and produced by Adama Ibo. And it's her uh, directorial debut. She and her sister obviously are partners in uh, creativity it comes out of Jordan Peele's uh, Monkey Paw Productions and is starring Sterling K. Brown and Regina Hall. So uh, did well at the Sundance Film Festival and its premiere, but uh, also streaming first on Peacock. And I think I watched it on Netflix, if I recall. But so let's turn to this uh, conversation about Honk for Jesus Save Your Soul, this film that looks at the Black megachurch. I'm not sure how many people, unless, you know, they're familiar with the experience, the Black church experience, know about the megachurch phenomena, the prosperity gospel, and all of those things that these filmmakers look at. Um, Tell us a little bit about your thoughts regarding this premise of the black mega church. And I at first thought Creflo dollar, but then to the last couple of days, I was like, no, that's Eddie long, (laughs) you know, with all the controversy that happened there. But so tell us a little bit about the premise of the film and your, your initial thoughts after watching it. Yeah. So I'm trying not to jump ahead uh, because of what you just threw out there with Creflo dollar and Eddie long, but uh, the film itself just makes me think about the long durée of Black folks in the church in particular, um, whether we go far back to middle passage, the Middle Passage and then slavery and how the church was used as just another mechanism to control those enslaved bodies or post-emancipation where uh, Black folks are trying to get away from that slave trope and respectability. So it becomes a respite and an organizational tool, even though in this country we're supposed to have separation of church and state. But I think just on a capital 
dichotomy in the most fiscally destitute parts that are often that are often occupied by black and brown bodies, you have these ginormous churches. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and and so that's where my brain went because born and raised in Detroit, left for 15 years, and then coming back, and even having lived in black neighborhoods on the East Coast, the one thing you will see are the church, despite what goes on in the park adjacent to the church or across the street from the church, you have this ginormous church. And all of a sudden you will hear the sound system on a Sunday morning slash afternoon. So that's what it made me think about after watching it. And even throughout watching it and also the geography of where this church is. Mm -hmm. Um, So it has made me think about how the church itself is a character with Black folks, for Black folks, but also separate from Black folks, too, because it's its own entity. So that's my big answer to what the film made me think about. And then, of course, there are more uh, succinct things like silence, respectability, stand by your man, this notion of power and status for uh, Black men and women in particular, but Black folks in general, and just the social status of a minister and a first lady. So I'll just stop there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Why, what did you think about the, the? obviously it's a mockumentary and it's kind of, right, the kind of documentary, mockumentary and film through this tele-evangelist framework I, I i that threw me off a little bit I, I i don't know i was distracted by it um but for obvious reasons i understand why they decided to kind of set up the the film that way but what are you what are your thoughts on that their framing of the story i think because we only have so many when we think about uh, black focused or black facing film. So that was one genre I think they wanted to envelop us in. But also because it's a satire, that mockumentary trope is so effective because I think of uh, the David Guest movies with um, Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara and Parker Posey, like those films and that mockumentary trope, especially Best in Show, is so effective and hilarious in the ways in which you can covertly and overtly thread things through it. And you're just left Mm. at times just laughing hysterics. I think that's what it was trying to do. Also, because of the subject matter of the film in particular, you have to kind of laugh at it and then cry about it kind of thing. So uh, I I think that was another reason why the satire, the mockumentary trope was used because Mm. uh, there are moments when you have to look at the fourth wall, as they say in film, looking directly, talking to camera. Um, And at times, are they talking directly to camera or are they talking to the person conducting the interview for the mockumentary? So there's like a fourth slash fifth wall that's going on. So I think that was the point, but also because it's a mega church, so much of their work is filmed um, because there's uh, the sermons are taped uh, right. and filmed and, and they do commercials and so on and so forth. So there's so much celebrity attached to the mega church 
pastor. And I think of uh, the infamous Trinity Broadcasting Network, uh, mm. whose studio is ironically <laughs> in the village in New York City. So, uh, and of course, it makes you think of um, Tammy and Jim Baker. Right, um, sure. So, yeah, and, and scandal that follows them and, and so many televangelists too. So I think that was kind of a multi-pronged reason why they chose that mockumentary. And of course, the number one form of entertainment is reality television. So <laughs> to add that. Right. So, sure. That's dominant. Yeah. So, it, I, so, that, so I think that's why they went that route. It reminded me too, now that I think of it, a lot of uh, Spike Lee's bamboozle. It, in terms of how he like sort of frames that story it made me think about some of the things that he did in terms of um, setting that story up. I, you know, obviously it's not his bamboozle is not about the church or religion, but just in techniques and style and things like that sort of made me think about uh, with this film. Mm. Who do you think Sterling K Brown's character is? Oh, I'm sorry. Did I cut you off? I was just saying like to follow up on you, I think that's a great, analysis and we don't give spike enough credit for just his techniques and how that influences black art production right like we don't Mm -hmm. but yeah that 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 film within a film within a film one's own subconscious too because there's like a subconsciousness of of bamboos or two that i now think about and i can't believe that movie is now 23 years old (laughs) i know it's his best film wow for me it's his best film i think so too i i would agree with you at least his top two you know so anywho so so uh who is uh lee based on aka sterling k brown's character i think he is an amalgamation of a few folk um sure obviously because of why they have to honk for Jesus, we think of Bishop Eddie Long. Um, <laughs> right. Right off the bat. <laughs> and other, uh, and that whole uh, conservative Christian move to be anti-LGBTQ+, and that hyperfixation with heteronormativity, and, uh, and of course, the layering of race with that is uh, there has been some very misogynistic patriarchal discourses that homosexuality was invented by white folk. Um, that that narrative has been espoused in certain um, black conservative church or ultra black conservative churches, because there's variations of conservatism. Um, he makes me think of Father Divine from... Yes, I thought about that. <laughs> um, and of course, uh, uh, I, was, I watched Car Wash a couple weeks ago. And of course... The reason why I watched it because we lost yet another Pointer sister, and of course Richard Pryor is gone. But of course, I think of Richard Pryor's character in Car Wash mm-hmm. as well. And that uh, even though there is no chorus, so to speak, I think of the ways in which the parishioners who are devout to Lee are its own kind of Greek chorus, and the ways in which the your yeah. sisters serve as as literally his Greek chorus and, and the Clark sisters. So so I think he's an amalgamation, obviously, of, of powerful Black pastors who are deemed the title of bishop. But I think of Father Divine, I think of um, Bishop Eddie Long, and of course, I think of uh, uh, Richard Pryor in Car Wash because of that comedic, satirical aspect. And Richard Pryor's character has no qualms or shame about 
uh, prosperity preaching in <laughs> in, in, his, in it. And of course, he's in front of a place of business, i.e. a car wash, right? So uh, <laughs> in the metaphor of, the, of washing something and making it new again. So, sure. uh, mm-hmm. and then of course, there's a whole scene with the baptism that happens with Lee where he baptizes himself. <laughs> and then that whole like eroticism, not just from a, uh, the ways in which Jesus Christ is depicted as almost sexual with the ripped abs and stuff on the cross, but he himself becomes a sexual trope for the heteronormative gaze, but also the the non-straight gaze. So it's a lot, <laughs> a lot of layers, a lot to of it. layers to it. But yeah, like I said, on an amalgamation on the one hand, but I can name like three or four people right off the top of my head who I think he's directly based upon. Mm-hmm. And in ways, he's Joel Austin, right? Because this <laughs> performative Christianity is a lot. Lo- I mean, it's older. It goes back to you know the creation of things like Salvation Army, which is performative, right? There's a lot of uh, performance in uh, Amy Simple McPherson. It makes me think about that long, like hundred year history of performative Christianity and how you said Father Divine, but it also made me think of Father Divine, but of Garvey, right? Yes. Perform performative, like this performativity that is happening with the rise of new communication media, film, mm. right? In the early 20th century. And its impact on American Christianity. Oh yes. Yeah. You know, over time in the you know, beginning of the early 20th century. Um, but I felt that Sterling K. Brown, who I love, and I think he's just a great actor, I felt at times his performance was bigger than the film. That's a great way of putting it. I almost feel as though this should have been an, a Broadway or off-Broadway play, you know, mm-hmm. where you really can play into an audience because there is are moments where you need an audience's response just to see the the hit of something. And so I couldn't agree with you more that his performance is at times bigger than the film or reads more as if this were Broadway or an actual theater stage. And I think that's also part of the satirical trope because it is a theater as a preacher, you're performing right, to an sure. audience too. So I think that's another layering of Lee himself where he, is bigger than the church and he's gotten quote unquote too big for his britches as they say. Yeah. Right. That's yeah. It's definitely a film that you need to watch a couple of times, two or three times I feel to catch everything that they're trying to get at, because there's also an interior critique of um, media itself, just like bamboozled is right. It's a critique of media itself. And um, how we use video and performance. There's there's like this entire critique going on um, in the film, not just of religion and faith, the megachurch sexuality and everything else that's happening. I feel like um, that it does include an interior critique of media. Uh, can we talk about that a little bit more? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the fact that uh, the church itself is a brand, is an image, is what we would expect if we were talking about a major television network or uh, 
Super Bowl just happened, right? So like that is a brand in itself. And even if you're not a football player, to get a commercial shown during the Super Bowl is like huge. Or to be asked to be an actor or someone part of the zeitgeist of Super Bowl. And I mean, the amount of celebrities who attended or attached to it, and even ourselves as uh, the populace or the public, um, making jokes like, why is this game interrupting Rihanna's concert? <laughs> you know, yeah. do I even know these players, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so yeah, and when we think of big name preachers, arguably a large percentage of them are Black men, uh, with the exception, like you said, Joel Osteen or, or so on and so forth. Uh, they are a brand and we culturally lean to them as not only being quote unquote spiritual leaders, but also intellectuals and political savvy folk. And so if they say it, there's a level of belief and suspense or disbelief. So yeah, that, that branding of that. And I think of what is T.D. Jakes, Jakes's church is called the Potter's House. And we know potters mold things into the shape and there's a manipulation of clay. So it's so are you the potter or is God supposed to be the potter or is a little bit of both? So that branding, right, is so mm-hmm. um, in it. And of course, we know that has a lot to do with media image and that religious figure in particular is under the tutelage of Oprah. So she, (laughs) she is the mastermind of branding. And we think of not just uh, TD Jakes, but we think of how she uh, relies on spiritual leaders. And once she exposes them, then their brand just skyrockets. Um, We all go to psychologists now because of Dr. Phil. We actually go to doctors now because of Dr. Oz, you know, and and, and so on and so forth. So, yes, in in that medium of television, um, it it reaches people much quicker than a classroom ever will. Mm. Yeah. No, I like this idea about how the churches brand themselves and T.D. Jakes. I mean, he's a movie maker. What was the movie Jumping the Broom, I think, that he was like an executive producer yeah, or something and, on? and I think Women Thou Art Loosed and a few other things. Right. Yeah. And, the whole, and the whole um series of, because I remember my sisters going to some of those massive conferences, the Women Thou Art Loosed Part 1, Part 2, Part 3. You know, I don't know how much money they paid to go to these things, but it's an industry, a brand, an industry. It's a money making business, which is, I think, central to their critique of the black mega church and all of it, I think. Um, but what about women, Trinity? I've been like sitting on my hands waiting for her to come up in an organic way. Uh, first of all, her name Trinity, right? Uh, I know the name itself is like okay. it's a whole thing, and uh, the way in which she herself stands for what she stands for, but also we saw where she got it from. Her own mother taught her to pretty much be an obedient wife and a dutiful wife, despite. Mm-hmm what Lee's shortcomings are and the ways in which she sutures that blatant and covert layering of, of just 
toxic marriage, she medicates herself by spending thousands of dollars on hats. <laughs> and and the hat lady, the hat lady, and of course the hat, aka the crown, is so symbolic of a woman attending a, a church, a black woman attending right. church in, in particular. So I just found that really just wow. And of course, she is exipli- uh, exuding wealth from her side, but also I think there's a scene where Lee is wearing like a Versace robe, right? A bathrobe. Um, <laughs> and then of course there's a, the confrontation scene with one of the gentlemen that has a, uh, a claim or a lawsuit against Lee was like, yeah, you buy me new shoes and Camaros. And I'm like, I can't afford a, a, a Toyota Camry, you know? So, uh, but just, yeah, that, that zooming amount of wealth and the way in which he was flashing it and she, as if they were uh Jay-Z and Beyonce or some mega hip hop couple. Uh, so yeah, Trinity, uh, the, the, the Holy Trinity, the, the three sides of first lady, wife and woman and the ways in which she has to participate in the code of silence. It was just, wow. It, it was, so yeah, Trinity is a lot to take in. Yeah. It's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think so. And, and I love the way that you convey, like using that name and looking at those three sides of her and then the play on the idea of the Trinity, because it's, it's her and her, her husband, but also his male lovers, like recasting this Trinity to have a connection to uh, like almost like polyamory, not like bringing that up in the context of this idea. Like the Trinity then gets reformulated while being critiqued. Yeah, and it's not even a, a permissible polyamory. It's a open, closed marriage where he gets to be open, but she has to be closed about it. And right. all of her pleasure relies on him. And there's this the bed scene where yes. clearly before the next part happens, I was like, oh, I think I know what it is. And so the fact that she, he can't even be intimate with his wife in the ways in which any partner would want, but he has a preferred position um, yes. or things that will only bring him pleasure, but brings her nothing. Um, right. All the while in her mind, is it because I am not the person that you would really want to be with? Uh, but I represent who you should be with. And so the only relief or release she has is to be able to buy these crowns to wear on, wear on Sunday. <laughs> you know? uh, so yeah, I, I just, and I think about how women, black women in the church are socialized in the code of silence and mm-hmm. grin and bear it. Um, and, sure. and it also makes me wonder, they don't mention it or allude to it, but besides her mother telling her to stick with it because Lee is, air quotes, a good man, what other levels of abuse has Trinity been made to ignore in her own life and in her mother's life, too? Because it, right. it seems just deeper than this, Right. Yeah, and this is something new when we consider, you know, one of my questions was, what about other depictions of of the Black church on film and television? I think this particular film, uh, things like uh, Spike Lee, you know, Red Hook Summer, things like this hasn't really been dealt with in film, Black films about the Black church. 
I think this this film is it, it goes further than any other. Um, you see a little bit of this in Greenleaf. Uh, you don't see it in Amen, for instance. Obviously, given the time frame that that TV show was on. Yeah, the only, uh, but it film, seems like it's a change. Yeah, it's a huge change because it it focuses on the role of the pastor in particular, which is like, whoa, funny Valentine's. It came out in 99 with Alfre Woodard and Loretta Devine. And they find out that they're actually sisters. They thought they were cousins. And uh, Loretta Devine's, who she thought was her mother, actually her aunt, was a head usher in the Salvation Army Church. And uh, Loretta Devine's character is mentally challenged. And um, she was assaulted sexually by the pastor's son. And so they just, it was a code of silence and no one said anything. And the only protest that uh, uh, Loretta Devine's mother does, played by the great CCH Pounder, is no longer goes to church. or And she gives up her uniform. And that was it, right? And so that's how they dealt with it. But that just, and it dealt with that code of silence and how even though, uh, the pastor's wife knows what her son does and we'll just send him away. And that's how it does. And so for all these years of scarring, and that also creates a suture within the family because of this horrible thing happens. Um, But not since 99 that we've really had something. So like you said, overt until we get Greenleaf as a series, which then deals with layerings of silence and assault again, but Hung for Jesus is like, we're just going to rip it open. And of course, I think about when it was released, too. <laughs> um, during, we were still, a lot of us were quarantining and shutting, shut down. Uh, so you had no choice but to peruse the film, you know. And actually, that's when I got caught up on Greenleaf and got to watch the series. Because uh, I couldn't, I can't afford OWN. So, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Speaking of money and and prosperity, but yeah, so that that it's not a lot that we have in our canon of black film that deals directly with the church. I mean, there's a film version of Go Tell It on a Mountain by James Baldwin, but you know, we don't even think of it into that severity or brevity because uh, that's still working on memoir fiction um, trope more so. So, yeah, you're right. We don't we don't have a lot realistically. So if we were to take Honk for Jesus in 2022 in it, in its release year prior to it or after, mm-hmm. what do you see as kind of some of the more memorable depictions of the black church on film before Honk for Jesus? Because Honk for Jesus, I think, changes the game in ways that anything we've seen before it. Right. Oh, absolutely. Um, because the only memorable church moment we have is uh, the color purple when um, Suge Avery storms a church. Um, sure. It, it, mm-hmm. But that's a very specific moment. But the fact that you sit with the church from beginning to end in this film uh, saturates it in ways that you don't realize how much 
church is a part of one's life, depending on your culture, especially in Black culture. So even if you didn't grow up in a religious household that barely went to church, probably never said grace at dinner, um, you got one up the road. You got a Black church up the road, or you go to that church to get a barbecue dinner or something, you know, and, and, and depending on what neighborhoods and cities and culture you grew up in, gospel music comes on your regular radio or is played on the R&B hip hop station. So uh, instead of it being this kind of thread in the tapestry, it is the tapestry. So I think that's what um, this film does. And also, if we as a people are going to really be seen in our multiplicity and nuance and grayness and discomfort, the church is not above critique. So I think that's what this film does. And it allows Black filmmakers, creatives to go like, you can talk about the church too. <laughs> you know, it's not above reproach um, in the ways that we at best can have a cute little uh, dinner table sitcom about it. Um so that's what's memorable. I think what's memorable for me is the knuck if you buck scene in the film. <laughs> <laughs> because when I hear knuck if you buck, uh, I think of like HBCUs at the yard or during homecoming when fraternities and sororities are stepping and strolling. Yeah, but, step show, yeah. But to see the first lady of the past are literally going in on that song. And of course they're in the South and that's such a Southern um, song. Uh, I think it's probably one of the most uh, memorable. And of course we spoke about Beyonce prior in a prior podcast about church girl. Um, right, yeah. And and so I, I thought that was just a really interesting um, continuation of the church girl conversation that we had. Uh, so for me, the knuck if you buck scene, <laughs> It's probably my favorite <laughs> in the entire film, but the film as a whole really allows us to really look at uh, sacred and secular spaces much differently than we have as a community for me. And the changing black church, because mm -hmm. the pray like when you look at the history of um, black church on television film, some new um, ideas have been introduced like the praise dancing and <laughs> to me that's so funny laugh out loud. <laughs> <laughs> and the um the praise miming <laughs> oh my goodness oh my goodness that right there when i tell you between the knuck if you boxing and the praise dancing thank you for mentioning it uh i literally got my, the price of my ambition on that film because oh my goodness uh and the ways in which it's interesting that that scene is in there because I think of the way TikTok has really flipped uh, iconic things in Black churches, i.e. The, the choir and how uh, the altos and the sopranos might have a little verp, uh, vocal beef and praise dances and the jokes about you could tell uh, the youth praise dances from the adult praise dances because the, the youth praise dances will put in a popular TikTok dance in it or something that a uh, marching band J-setter would do versus uh, an older praise dancer. And so, and then in true Regina Hall comp comedic brilliance, because she's a great comedic actress. She is. She's, yes. uh, uh, to do the Marcel Marceau face paint, mime paint, 
Oh my goodness. It was, and I was, and you can, and I, you were like, oh, that's why she was, didn't want to quite do the praise dance at first. Cause there's that layer to it. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Oh yeah. So I, I just, yeah. That's why I literally erupted in laughter when you said praise dance. <laughs> Cause a lot of people, I, I think this is a film that people should see, but also watch again, because I think it deals with the layers of African-American culture within the context of the church that many non-African-Americans are not familiar with. You know, they would have to watch this film and get the satire. But I think even for African-American audiences, because we are, you know, we know like when, the praise dancing was brought into the church. There was a big um, debate about, you know, what's, what are you doing? This is not a club, you know, what is this praise dancing? You know, we have to try and get younger folks back in the church. Yeah. And, and, and very ultra conservative uh, sex within Christianity in particular are not about dancing at all. It's like the movie Footloose. Um, That's true. And, and of course, in in Pentecostal. Pentecostal. Oh, definitely. And so, and then of course you think about the other Abrahamic religions, Judaism and Islam, women do not dance in front of men, right? Like that's just a no, no. So Mm -hmm. it's the same thing with very, conservative sects of Christianity, especially in a Pentecostal apostolic church. No, 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 no. Uh, you might shouldn't clap or bob your head too hard. You know? uh, so with that praise dance element, like you said, it was to attract uh, youth and also just think of multiple ways in which, quote unquote, the spirit enters the body and the spirit gives reverence. Right. Uh, but of course, it is that and that sacred and secular thing uh, is a very fine line that uh, we're doing when we talk about praise dance, but the miming into <laughs> the praise dancing, I was just like, whoa, whoa, Can somebody please give this woman an NAACP, it's some kind of war for just that scene, because it's so <laughs> brilliant. And, I know, she's great. And, and, and also... The fact that it's not inside the church when she does it, she's literally on the side of the road. She got to get them to hunk. They get them to hunk. They got to hunk for Jesus. Right. So literally, she got has to take literally the pulpit to the street kind of thing, right? So that that sacred sphere space, which is somewhat private, and then making it public sphere. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's just, and then that's another layer to it. But yeah, um, and it makes one realize how you could look at a four-minute performance of an artist and be able to extrapolate a 20-page article or argument for it, um, this film, it easily can be an entire book because of the amount of sharing, as you mentioned it, is just so much. And uh, yeah, but that scene in particular, I mean, we could talk about that for an entire hour. I mean, it's just so good. (laughs) No, I, I absolutely agree with you. Yeah. I mean, what will, what will, as we start to um, conclude here, mm-hmm. what will the Black Church on film look like after this this film? I mean, I'm just thinking about some more recent things that appeared on television and film, like uh, the Clark Sisters on Lifetime, mm-hmm. and like we said, I think Greenleaf mm-hmm. on a level was doing some of this stuff. Yeah, but it, it is infused with with respectability politics, Oprah's own, you know, view of the world and respectability. It kind of 
shapes that that show. Obviously, it's on own, right? The own network. But what are you, what are your some thoughts on the Clark sisters? It's so interesting you mention it because I remember when it premiered, and again, that's another COVID release, so everybody was home to watch. And of course, it's still the highest, if not one of the highest viewed films in Lifetime film history. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the Clark sisters did not participate, uh, which is Denise Clark. And that's why her character is seen the way it is in a lot of ways. But also, mm-hmm. even if she participated, I don't even think that church sect, uh, Church of God in Christ in particular, would have been ready for all that she had to say. Because in an interview separate from it, she talks about, yeah, people talk about me being an unwed mother, but they don't talk about who made me an unwed mother? And it was one of the bishops mm. of the church, right? That's right. Uh, so yep. again, um, they went there in a lot of ways with the Clark Sisters movie, but they could have gone even farther um, if they truly wanted to. And it's not like the other sisters didn't know who the baby's father was, you know? Right. Uh, exactly. And, yeah. and so, but I say all that to say, uh, what is it important agenda? But I will say for it to be the Church of God in Christ, a.k.a. the Kojic uh, sect of the Pentecostal religion, uh, they went pretty far. They went farther than I thought they would have. But I think that's just another reason for others to pick up the baton and, and move the needle even further. Uh, because there's a lot of things folks still haven't spoken about that is in the Pentecostal sect in particular. That's right. Um, <laughs> Reform. Reformed Pentecostal over here. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I, I, I argue it's like one side for me, one side is like Catholic and the other side is very like Baptist Pentecostal. So like I am like I've gotten singed by the Pentecostal fire a few times. <laughs> is what I say. <laughs> um, so I know that world very well. And then another sect, which I think is probably arguably what Lee and Trinity Church is, that non-denominational sect which is Pentecostal in sheep's clothing, what it tends to be. Um, But, but they more so focus on the prosperity aspect of it is, is really this um, braiding of where, uh, what we need to really rip some layers off about more. Um, And also just the trauma of the church. Um, when a stranger does it, it's violence, but because we know and love you, air quotes, it's just love. It's not harm. So I think that's another layer that I think will be, uh, talked about in future works, uh, because the door has been at least open, unlocked. Someone needs to take it off the hinges, but at least it's been unlocked. You can (laughs) open it. Right. So (laughs) I think that's where, uh, work will be headed. Yeah, and even with Beyonce's Renaissance, oh, yeah. is another yeah. s- sort of moment where she's uh, critiquing the church and yeah. the you know in Renaissance. Yeah, I can't wait to see what our Caribbean cousins and our continental African cousins do with with it as well. Speaking of, sure, yeah, I know this was fabulous. <laughs> well, 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 thank you so much for joining me today, Anwar, on this week in Black History, Culture, and Society. Another great show. Oh, man. Oh, thank you so much. I'm saying the universal name, not you. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Sure.